The song's about my mom. She was not into me playing music. I think she's coming around to it, but she knew it would be like a hard life. This is Laura Stevenson, songwriter and singer from Long Island, New York, discussing a song called Caretaker, the third track from her second album, Sit Resist. When I was writing this, I was taking care of her house and uh, I was taking care of her cats and stuff. But then I decided to move to Brooklyn full time with Mike, uh, the bass player of the band who I am now married to. And I don't know, even though I was living for free in her house, I just didn't want to feel guilty living there while I was pursuing uh, something that she didn't want me to pursue. Set Resist has been remastered at Abbey Road Studios and will be reissued by Don Giovanni Records on September 4th, 2020. Life's Work is a podcast about Sit Resist. And this week, we look at Side A. I'm Tim Crisp for Better Yet, and this is Life's Work. Laura Stevenson and her band had spent months building the songs that would make up Sit Resist. While practices and shows were a come one come all affair, the band was well rehearsed and went into the studio with intention. Every time we got together, we would just like make the song better and then make a recording of that and make the song even better and make a recording of that. And then we worked really hard on sequencing and because I really loved In the Aeroplane Over the Sea and how like all the songs kind of like flow into each other and it make they make so much sense it's so cohesive as you do in the mid-2000s you listen to a lot of neutral milk hotel that's mike campbell laura's partner and bass player that record in that time if not exactly the same flavor of punk that we all came from is certainly diy spirited and you know i think that that was stylistically an influence on us at the time in the aeroplane over the sea may be heralded as an indie rock classic but its impact on punk in the 2000s cannot be overstated. Its influence can be felt all over the fuzzy compression of a record, but the songs that make up Sit Resist were taking cues from a wide array of influences on top of Neutral Milk Hotel. I mean, like, honestly, Halloween, I was, like, obsessed with the Arcade Fire. And I know that that might not be, like, cool to say, but, like, I was like, fuck, this band is just amazing like i just loved their records so like you can hear that on halloween for sure like all like the kind of like the things coming in and out i also really liked beirut and you can kind of hear that in some of the horn stuff and like you know just like the stuff that was cool around then and mixed with like some 90s indie rock we opened like every show in this time with halloween it was always like the live set opening song because it eases you in to what the rest of the record would be and it eased you into what a live set would be. Halloween Parts 1 and 2 is the first in a set of 13 songs that are all connected. Though sonically, they cover a wide range of tones. I think that the overall tone is sort of varied. I think that the arrangements can lend the songs to feeling bright and then it could get, you know, extremely dark when necessary. And I think that's sort of been a theme in Laura's records if you look at the arc of them as a whole where even before with a record and since i think that they all sort of take you on a pretty varied arc of emotion and feeling and vibe and i think that's a testament to i don't know what what one experiences over the course of a life or a period of time is you know i think that those dark moments are really dark and then the the sunny ones are really sunny 
the band would look to capture those moments when recording. Tracking for Sit Resist would take place in New Egypt, New Jersey, at Eric Bennett's Hunt Studio. We were ready, but we prepared so intensely because we were so poor that we didn't want to waste a single second. These sessions would be markedly different from a record or anything Laura and Mike had done prior. A record had been recorded in a loft space with Mike's friend Bryce Hackford, and recordings for the Holy Ghost 7-inch and the band split with Bomb the Music Industry had been done with Jeff Rosenstock in his practice space. But Hunt's studio was a step up in terms of professionalism. At least that was the idea. I think that record was the first record I did at that studio. That's Eric Bennett. Technically, he produced the sessions. So I think the night before, I was wiring up the console, like the night before they came in. Like, I don't I got, I wasn't sure. I didn't even know if anything would work when they came in and started tracking. Hunt Studio existed in a few different incarnations before the New Egypt location. The story of the name will give you a bit of insight into its proprietor. The Hunt was a studio that I had starting around 2000. I had studios before that, but it was this one particular studio that sort of, um, they got baptized the Hunt, and that was because it was in this weird sort of warehouse space that was owned by these brothers that were hunters. So the deal was like, it was a great space and it was, the rent was really, really cheap, but it was contingent upon me leaving all of their hunting trophies, deer heads hung all over the walls. So I, I wasn't, allowed to like take them down it's not really a hunting crowd that i record you know it's not. so in order to try to make it palatable or at least um acceptable i just call it the hunt and i think it just sort of put people a little bit more at ease i, I don't know if it really did or not i thought like oh maybe they would like they would be shocked when they came in and saw like a wall for full of dead animals staring at them while they're while they're performing I don't know, that was the thought process at the time. Eric is hilarious and he is zero bullshit and he will fuck with you till the moment you die. Laura's statement can be confirmed by this interviewer's experience asking Eric questions like, what other bands have you recorded before? Like you want me to name drop people? Yeah. Is that is that what you're asking me to do? Yeah. I'm not gonna do that. Were you excited about recording Laura Stevenson? I had never heard a single note that Laura had had done. So I mean, I, honestly, I have no idea why they can't do a record with me, but they did. Um, and as far as me looking forward to anything, no, I, like it was just, it, you know, I was just doing another record. I'd done like, I don't know, a zillion before that. And, doing another one so eric did have pre-production conversations with mike where he dropped a huge bit of knowledge about hunt studios mixing console i think mike had asked me like a couple like technical questions that i was just like yeah yeah i don't know i got a tape machine console that they did uh 36 chambers on i don't know you know i don't know this is the board that makes 36 chambers by the way we're like wait what (laughs) i guess we'll mix with you i mean that's that sounds good That record's cool. The console that had mixed the Wu-Tang Clan's legendary debut, Enter the 36 Chambers, would also serve as a mixing board for Sit Resist. Here's Eric with the thrilling background story of how this piece of history came into his possession. I I think there's probably a lot of like myth and and hearsay, Um, but I got it from the guy that that owned one of the studios 
that that had been worked on. I think it, I think they had bounced around to like a few studios. That studio had closed and he had it in a storage space for, I'm assuming 100 to 150 years by the look of the console when I got it. It, it, it was a mess. The console was, to, was a total mess. It was, if it was a house, you would have, you would have torn it down and it, immediately. Um, but not me. I'm like, this sounds absolutely terrible. Let, let's just keep using it. Let's fire it out and keep using it. It was cool. It had like a, it had like a super good low end, a terrible top end. It was like, luckily it had 36 channels on it. And I'm, I don't know if that's where they got the name, but I, but I kind of like, I kind of wonder if that's that's how the name of that record came about. Eric had the right kind of energy to calm the nerves that Laura and Mike were feeling recording in a studio for the first time, and the three struck an immediate kinship. Yeah, yeah no, I mean they're not going to hear this right because I'm going to say nice things. And no, they're fantastic. Um, they're both extremely bright. They're caring people and they're considerate people. He was such a great introduction to like what a studio is because we were so green and we had no idea. And he was so like understanding and he will walk you through something, you know, like he like explains things to you knowing that you don't know, but he understands that you don't know because you come from the world of punk and like you just don't do all that shit. They weren't very precious about being teased and they took sarcasm well which is good because that's really uh, the only language they understand. That's the only way I can communicate. The only records I had made at that point were Latterman records, which were in Phil from Latterman's basement. It was the first more proper feeling situation of like this person's going to actually uh, steer the ship a little bit and not not even like produce, but just sort of be like, we're going to do drums and bass today. Like, cool, thanks for letting us know. Like, I don't know, we don't know what we're doing, you know? There was no producer, you know, there was no producer on the record. I guess I guess Mike sort of took on that role in the beginning. Then it just sort of morphed into um, sort of a record by committee, if, that's, uh, if that makes any sense. Eric was well adept technically, and the band was well organized, taking care of tracking as efficiently as they could being away from their home base in Brooklyn. We made it a little bit in pieces. Like Laura and I and Chris Parker recorded the basic tracking. And then when Chris left, like Alex and Peter would come to New Egypt and do their parts and then they would leave. And like Laura and I would parse through stuff with Eric as far as choices of tones of stuff, you know? So that was all sort of like Eric, Laura, me. I think I, I did realize, so like most of the bands I'd done are like, super punk rock like do a record recorded and mixed in like a day or two days um so i think uh when when i was talking to mike i i got the sense like oh he wants to do like he wants to do like a record and he wants to like he wants to get into it and he wants to get fiddly um but i didn't realize how involved things were going to be instrumentation wise how more hi-fi that Mike wanted to go, but Laura definitely didn't want to go. I definitely, especially coming from like a record where it was super lo-fi, um, which was like intentional, but also like that's what we were working with. You know what I mean? So like you just have to make make it work for you. Now we're like in a nice space and I don't know how to be slick. 
you know, and I don't feel comfortable with being slick. Eric's description of the discrepancy between Mike and Laura's vision is lined with his inherent position as a potster. It wasn't a situation of one trying to take control over the other as much as it was a difference in recording experience and thought towards, well, the idea of recording music. Mike, obviously, it had come from like a punk rock, hard, you know, hardcore sort of world. He had a decent amount of experience recording. And I know Laura had a bit, she wasn't super confident about the recording process. And Mike, I feel like, is just a fan of records and he like cares more about like how records are made and he like thinks about how records are made and like he he's like a music historian you know so he like I don't know yeah he's a nerd so he just he thinks about that stuff more than I do and I just kind of like think about songs themselves. Eric struck a balance in giving the band direction to take advantage of the studio environment to find a sound that truly captured the songs Laura had written and the wide range of sonic influences embedded in their composition. He had Laura use a couple different guitars, you know, like she'd always played Telecasters and the thought being like, yeah, Laura will just use her guitar that she uses at every show to track the record. But Eric was sort of like, why don't we try this Dan Electro? Why don't we try this like hollow body telly? You know, just like playing with different sounds that we would have never thought because we were just prepared to like plug in and play and use our gear. I don't know. I, I definitely was just like, I'll just play this like guitar and I'll play it for everything because that's like what I do. And then he would be like, why don't we try other gear? Why don't we try, you know, we have these resources. Why not use them? Obviously, she knew what she wanted songwriting wise. Immediately, what struck me was she was that she was such a competent songwriter. And then uh, what struck me next was how much of a capable singer and musician she was. But she still portrayed this sort of green vibe. I mean, I'm not like an audiophile, honestly. So I don't like, I don't listen to the way things sound, really. I just kind of like, that's, I have people around me that care about that stuff. I don't really care about that stuff. <laughs> Is that bad? <laughs> There's definitely moments where it sounds like it was made in 2010, but it also sounds like someone who's songwriting and the musicians that she's playing with have a varied pool of influence they're drawing from. And I think there were definitely intentional things made to capture some of those aesthetic influences. And I think there were things that were just naturally occurring. But I think Laura also loves Built to Spill and wanted some of the electric guitar to sound like it could have been played by Doug Marsh. I uh, I gave Eric like a Built to Spill song as like a mix reference. And the song, I just gave it to him because I liked the song. I didn't give it to him because like, and it was like super jangly and like really trebly. And he was like, really? And I was like, yeah, this is it. There, there was such a... Uh discrepancy between the conversation that I had with Mike and then the reference that she gave me and I was like oh wow okay all right so I gotta I gotta switch gears completely let me pull a lot of mics off this drum kit uh because it sounds like I think we only need one mic everything on the record sounds like kind of trebly because that's like what I 
thought I wanted because I liked this built to spill song that like sounded kind of like shit. <laughs> and also Laura and I were listening to the Phil Spector box set a lot. And so when we were doing Master of Art, she really wanted to just capture that Ronette's classic drum beat. And we did it in our backyard. And I, I don't know how to play the drums, but I had a bass drum and a snare drum. And when reading a lot more about Phil Spector, you find out he would take cymbals away from drummers so they wouldn't hit them. And so when he's recording, all they have is the boom and the thwack. And so when we're doing Master of Art, she was like, we should really utilize that Ronette's classic Be My Baby beat. And I was like, okay, I don't know how to play drums, but if you put a kick drum in front of me and a snare, I can do doom, doom, pa, doom, doom, pa. And so that's what we did. He wanted to use this like gorgeous plate reverb and I was like, what? What's that? And then he put it on and we used it for Master of Art and it sounds fucking awesome. You know, Laura was like, I want to put this Ronette's drum beat in this song. Cool. And that's what we did. You could definitely talk to Eric about the plate reverb. He was so excited to get to use that thing. <laughs> I had a tech at the studio and he's a guy, probably now he's got to be in his, you know, somewhere in his 60s and um, was dropping off something at his house and I looked on the side of the house where there was like, he had his garbage piled up and there was this thing that looked like a bed frame. But then as I sort of examined closer from the car, like, is that a, is that like a, the guts of a plate reverb? And I asked him and he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm throwing that away. I'm like, I'm like what? what are you talking about? You're throwing away. He's like, yeah, I don't, who wants to use a plate reverb? It takes up tons of space. It's a pain in the ass. So, well, anyway, that's, so I ended up with this plate reverb. It was, it was slated for the garbage. And he let me play so much vocally, which was really awesome because that's what I love to do. And so we spent a lot of the time, the extra time doing that shit instead of like, you know, redoing guitars and doing it, doing it, doing it, you know, driving it into the ground to get that perfect, perfect, perfect take. Cause I think also we were so well rehearsed that like that, like basics were like pretty simple. Um, but a lot of the like extras and extra hours were spent just me being in the vocal booth like and him just letting me go and layer as much as I wanted and being like, can I do another track? And he'd be like, okay. And like, so like, you know, I'd be like, that's 20 vocals. And he's like, okay, you want to make it 21? I'm like, yeah. Honestly, she needs like, she needs like one take. Maybe two takes if she said like the wrong word. Laura's pitch is, is it's ridiculous. It is so spot on and the two times that it's not it's still charming so there wasn't a lot to be done and then i even like tried to dumb it down during mixing <laughs> and eric was like fighting me on it he was like no but if we do it this way it'll sound so much better like you should do it this way and i'm like no but now like he was right <laughs> i think she especially then she was really in her own head about it and she did not want the vocals to sound big and she did not want the vocal she didn't want them to sound good she wanted to sound she still wanted it to sound she was convinced that she was making a punk rock record and mike was definitely not convinced they were making a punk rock record i didn't think that that was how you did it so i didn't i was open to it but i wasn't like thinking that i was going to stray from like what my my vision was which was like we're gonna just play with our gear and it'll sound like shit right that'll be fine 
<laughs> so like, and I was comfortable with things sounding like shit, probably because I could hide behind it a little bit. Uh, so when we were doing vocals and like mixing vocals, she just kept pushing for things to be more scratchy and then bury them. That was the general approach to doing her vocals. She, I, I think she just hadn't come to terms with the fact that she has like a fantastic voice and it should be, it can, you know, it can stand on its own. So I think she still was looking to hide a little bit. One of the album's most powerful moments gave room for no hiding at all. The performance captured on the album's fifth track finish piece featured Laura, an upright piano, and an overcoat. I recorded it at the studio. Um, it was really cold in the room that the piano was in, so I was wearing my overcoat. <laughs> I remember I was wearing like a winter coat. The only room that was climate controlled was the control room and the live room, which we would spend 10 hours a day and it was just freezing cold. We were all just recording in our coats. Um, and But I don't know, it sounds good. <laughs> I don't think it affected the sound of it necessarily. I think I played it and sang it at the same time. And that song, that song was really like a special little thing. I'm really happy that it ended up on the record. I've never played it live. I think Finish Peace began as part of Peachy and it was decided prior to recording we should actually separate these two and have Finish Peace be solo piano and then it it fades right into Peachy. Those songs are just companion pieces. Like one of them is like I'm trying to I'm trying to help you know, and then the second one, like Peachy is more just like, I'm like the fixer of my family. Like I'm always like the person that needs to hold everybody together. And like, I'm also, you know, I struggle with depression and it's really difficult to have the energy to take care of myself and everybody else. And so like, I was definitely giving a lot of myself to help somebody and I was like losing myself. So like the first half is like trying to trying to help and then the second half peachy is kind of just like absolving myself of that responsibility sort of even though I'm still taking it on like I'm I'm in a way freeing myself of it just symbolically just for a little like <laughs> just to make myself feel a little bit like I have some more agency in my own life even though I'm definitely still the fixer um but whatever it's like you take care of you and I'll be okay I'll be over here yeah exactly that's exactly it um so it's kind of like and it's also like joyous because I'm like taking that weight off of myself of course Peachy's end section brings us back to Laura's childhood home same place we began this week with Caretaker but side A of Sit Resist would close with a song called 808, a song which recalled a month when the summer hurt, despite all the joy. So I wrote this song um, in one night. It was like super, super quick. Um, I wrote it... It's about August of 2008, which was like a really difficult time for me. Um, I was sinking into a very deep depression um, after 
years after what I thought was my like rock bottom of depression. And I thought that like the rest of my life I'd have like a grip on it for some naive reason. But anyway, um, I was hospitalized when I was 19 and I didn't think that it could be worse. Um, and this, if I had let it get worse, it could have been worse than that. But I really kind of, um, took kind of control of it for the first time. And I had all these feelings like I wanted to destroy everything and isolate myself. Mike and I were living together. I'm in love for the first time. <laughs> um, and all of a sudden I just started to slip and I was just like, I thought we were going to break up all the time because like any disagreement we had, I was like, it's over, isn't it? And he's like, no, like, we're just having a, like, we're just having a conversation. And I was like, oh, because <laughs> I didn't understand that like relationships can just like exist because I didn't have like a very good example of that growing up. <laughs> you know, all I saw was just like chaos and anger all the time. So like, even if we had just like disagreed about something or like, I, I just thought that it was over, you know, and I just like, I started kind of, I just started to kind of lose it. And I was super depressed and he was seeing this side of me and like, and that was really scary, you know, because he, you know, we were pretty new. And then all of a sudden he's like having to like, you know, hold me up. And that's a lot of responsibility for somebody, you know, in like, you know, who's like 22 years old. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I was just like starting to get as low as I was <clears throat> the summer that I was hospitalized and I started getting really, really, really scared. Um, and I didn't want to lose him because I knew that what we had was really special, even if I was trying to push him away. Um, just to self-sabotage, because that's my thing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and he was like, no, I'm going to be here. And then we got through it. Look at me now. <laughs> um, and this time, when I was 19, I wasn't in a relationship. But this time, I was in a relationship. And I was just going to, like, push him away and just decide to submit to this thing but then I I I didn't and I climbed out of it and I got to the other side of it um, but it was really scary just like the feeling of falling um, and anticipating potentially a worse worse than rock bottom scenario um, and it it was really really scary but anyway I am fine now. <laughs> I mean, I'm not fine, but I am much better. So that is great. Okay, bye. Life's Work is a production of Don Giovanni Records and Better Yet. To pre-order the remastered Sit Resist, visit DonGiovanniRecords.com. For more info on Better Yet, visit BetterYetPod.com. Next week on Life's Work. I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do with this? Like, I, I thought this... Yeah, this uh, the song was done. Like, what do you like? What do you mean? <laughs>